I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the Bishi Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Joining me today is an old friend, Alison Taylor. Alison is a clinical professor at the NYU Stern School of Business and also an executive director of Ethical Systems, which is a, a research collaboration focused on building ethical organizations. Alison has spent decades advising large companies on risk, corruption, sustainability, organizational culture and the like. And she's here today to discuss her new book, which comes out in February 2024, Higher Ground, How Business Can Do the Right Thing in a Turbulent World. Her book is a contemporary guide to navigating the complexities of modern business ethics in a very fraught and volatile environment. So looking forward to that discussion. Thank you for joining me today, Alison. Thank you so much for having me, Martin. So Alison, much ink has been spilled on the topic of ESG and sustainability. It keeps changing its name. Why, nevertheless, did you feel that you needed to, uh, to write a book on the topic? Well, I would start off by saying I certainly cover ESG and sustainability, but I try to take an even bigger perspective and I try to answer the question of when and why we, we all seem to have collectively lost sight of what it means to be a good business in the sense of ethical. What I see out there, which you may see as well, is complete confusion on this topic. Some of this conversation is raging in the ESG and sustainability world for sure. But one of the interesting things about ESG is, is how keen its advocates are to say that ESG has nothing to do with ethics and it's all about risk and it's all about corporate value and so on. We can also think about traditional notions of ethics and compliance, which are obviously very, very legalistic. And if you just take a look out there today at what young workers, what consumers, what even investors are saying, it's clear that just don't break the law and maximize shareholder value is no longer feasible advice. But what should replace that, I, I think, is anyone's guess. And so one of the interesting points about organizations today is that they tend to be very siloed in terms of there's an ethics and compliance team and then an ESG and sustainability team that don't have much to do with each other. But with all these ideas converging and becoming more chaotic, that presents a, a range of challenges, not least how we manage internal governance. Good. So let's, let's dig into some of that. And indeed, my perception of your book was that you were trying to restore common sense to a very complicated and accident-prone area. Now, in some sense, there's nothing new about this topic. I mean, ethics has always been a, an issue for business to deal with. There have always been things beyond the business narrowly defined that needed to be managed. Do you think this perception that things have gotten more complicated and the consequences have gotten more severe is just a perception or is that the reality, do you think? I think there is a reality to this. And if we think back to, to the late 20th century, when Milton Friedman's ideas really worked and really resonated, there was much more ability, not least because the media was much more concentrated, for corporations to control the narrative, to control their reputations, to control what was being said about them. And so a number of things have changed since. First and most obviously has been the rise of social media, which has forced corporations into a much more fraught and interactive relationship with their stakeholders. That's all very obvious. We no longer necessarily take a corporation's word for it when we're figuring out what to buy, where to go on holiday, where to work. We're much more likely to look at what other people are saying about this company. So there's 
that very sort of significant development, I think even more significantly as a result of social media, you have employees far less likely to, to sit on their own and call the whistleblowing line, far more likely to get together to weaponize embarrassing internal information, to put that damaging internal information out into the public domain in an effort to hold leaders accountable. And I think this all effectively means that confidentiality is dead and it necessitates a rethink on how you manage reputation and how you manage what you're saying you're, you're doing. I think the second thing that's happened is that business has got much more drawn into political conversations. We can take a very obvious and clear example from the US. A teenager, Michael Brown, was murdered by the police in 2014. Corporations, other than Jack Dorsey, corporate leaders would not touch that issue with a barge pole in 2014, seen as too controversial. What does this have to do with business? Fast forward to 2021, many, many, many American CEOs giving their opinion on, on the George Floyd murder verdict. So business has got far more drawn into controversial social and political questions over the last decade. And that presents a dramatically new risk environment, I think. Not that those risks haven't always been there, but I think corporate rhetoric has put corporate leaders in a different spot and made life more challenging. And then thirdly, I think the shift in ideas about what a job is for, what a corporation is for among young people really, really presents a new set of challenges as well. So the way I put it in the book is that the professional has become personal. So certainly none of these challenges are wholly new, but I think there are new forces out there that all effectively serve to dissolve those boundaries, those information boundaries, those authority boundaries, those strategic boundaries that we placed around a corporation traditionally. Those are all dissolving and, and what happens next is anyone's guess. So large businesses spend huge resources and time and effort on corporate affairs statements and sustainability reports and uh, ESG reports and stakeholder management and the like. Your book and the examples in it suggest that nevertheless, they sometimes lose their way or actually exacerbate situations they might find themselves in. What, what's the common thread in terms of the common patterns of getting this, this set of issues wrong? Do you see a sort of typology of, of traps, as it were? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a number of traps. We can, we can just look at the notion that's out there all the time with all the pressure on greenwashing and wokewashing and, and in the discourse in general that Everybody is terribly upset about corporate hypocrisy. But because a corporation isn't a person, a corporation is a system, you end up looking like a hypocrite just if you're not coordinating and getting your ducks in a row, for example, between HR, government affairs, and sustainability. You also asked about you know, all these glossy sustainability reports, these ESG metrics, these disclosures. I think Unfortunately, a lot of sustainability or ESG efforts can really be thought of as kind of the paramilitary wing of the marketing department. There isn't really a genuine effort to build trust or change anything. The idea is we tell an attractive story to stakeholders and then we'll have a better reputation and stakeholders will leave us alone. So one of the big challenges, I think, is seeing communication, seeing messaging, seeing corporate affairs as divorced from underlying practices and thinking, if you just tell an attractive story, that will be enough. And unfortunately, it is no longer enough. So let's dig into some specific areas, as indeed the chapters of your, of your book do. So let's take purpose, for example. It's, it's been quite popular in 
recent years to articulate, you know, why does the corporation do what the corporation does and to use that as a, a device to, to align the efforts of, of employees and, and align perceptions of the firm. Does purpose help and, and what are the watchouts and best practices in, in deploying purpose? I mean, I think the emergence of purpose is, is a really fascinating development in itself and, and really takes us back to the premise of my book. We don't really have a catch-all term, a vehicle for managing these new pressures. And we've set on, on purpose because it does somehow capture those cultural challenges, those environmental and social pressures, those notions of impact, that kind of thirst from the general public for ethics. I think where this tends to go wrong is that this is treated as somewhat of a, a quick fix. I don't think it's a big mystery that the people most enthusiastic about purpose are branding consultants. And again, we get back to this notion that if you just redefine your purpose, you go on an executive retreat, you put out some attractive narrative, that will in itself be enough to make your brand trusted, to make employees more motivated, and to somehow kind of lead to all these financial payoffs that we are told purpose brings you. We also have these, these notions that are very popular that your purpose should be about your role in society and you should only have a positive purpose. But every business I've ever worked with has both positive and negative impacts. And then there are even bigger questions about positive and negative in whose eyes. I have a, a very interesting discussion with my MBA students every semester about would you work at Amazon? And it kind of divides the room 50-50 with half of them thinking that this is a totally unethical organization they would never work for. And the other half still thinking this is innovative, great CV points. Amazon has changed the world. Amazon is a wonderful organization. So that, I think, speaks to the difficulty of defining good and bad to defining social value and so on. So certainly an organization needs superordinate goals. Without that, you're just a, a loose group of people. Certainly saying that that overarching goal is just the maximization of shareholder value is, has never probably been that practical, but, but is certainly not something you can say out there today. But still, I think there's too much glomming onto this as a convenient quick fix to solve these, these bigger underlying issues which are about structure, they're about governance, they're about the role of business in society. And I think there's a need to think about this as a, a question of culture, a question of impact, and really a collective effort that the organization needs to undertake. Yes. Let's come to another issue, and you've already mentioned this once in our conversation, taking a stance on social issues. I think taking a stance on political and social issues is on the rise. Should corporations take political stances? And if they should, when and how should they do so, do you think? I think it's super fascinating, right, the way that corporations have got drawn into this conversation over the last decade. We all know business used to say we are politically neutral. We don't get involved in these conversations. We have the famous joke, you know, Republicans buy sneakers too by Michael Jordan. And this all seemed highly sensible up until about 2013. And, and indeed, if you're Walmart, why would you want to alienate half of your consumer base by taking a stand on, on a controversial position? So companies got gradually drawn into this from about 2010 onwards. Partly this is the consequence of social media and the rise of activism. I think in the US, Trump had a catalytic role. You know, he gets elected. He starts, you know, taking all these very, very divisive positions, first on immigration, certainly soon after on climate change. 
There was obviously a lot going on on race and inclusion as well. And so, you know, in parallel to this, there was a lot of rhetoric from the business press about how CEOs are the new politicians and the new CEO activism and the general public is expecting CEOs to fill the gap, you know, left by politicians and really step into this void and show leadership. So I don't think it's any big mystery that leaders got tempted and drawn into taking these stances and saying these things. It seemed in in 2018, 2019, like all upside, relatively black and white. Even when Putin invaded Ukraine, you know, there's a lot of reputational pressure, companies standing up, companies pulling out of Russia on human rights grounds. This all looked black and white as well. But when we start to get to questions of abortion and gun control and Israel and Gaza, things get a lot more fraught and complicated. So I think many CEOs and corporate leaders are now thinking better of this and feeling like they've opened Pandora's box, opened the Overton window, which indeed they have, because once you've said, we have values, we take stances, we care about something more than making money. It's very, very hard to shut that back down if your vocal young employees and consumers are pushing you in that direction. So I certainly get the sense out there that this has gone too far and and people really regret it. I think the other thing that's happened as a consequence of this is it has really opened up this yawning gap between rhetoric and action and has really focused a lot of people, again, not least young employees, on companies' political spending and the way they are using their influence behind the scenes. So it is, it is the norm in much of corporate America to be saying, for example, we support the Paris Climate Agreement and here are climate goals on the sustainability part of the website where down the hall, unannounced on the website, the government relations team is, is messaging and lobbying in a very, very different direction. So all of these taking of public stances has had a a number of negative unintended consequences for firms, not least really drawing a lot more scrutiny on issues like responsible tax and political spending. So I think it's, it's all got very, very complicated. And then I'll, I'll just sort of end by saying we've almost got to the position, and I hear this in the classroom, where people are saying, you know, stakeholders are like the electorate and corporate leaders are like politicians and corporate leaders have some ability or mechanism to represent the voices of their stakeholders in the public domain. And and you've written about this yourself. A corporation is not structured or set up to do that. There is no mechanism to track and record what stakeholders are thinking, and it wouldn't be appropriate even if there was. So uh, yeah, I think we've got ourselves into a bit of a mess on this one. Right. And we'll talk in a minute about how to get out of that mess, but just uh, clicking through another couple of chapter headings, as it were. So you talk a lot in the book about the importance of trust, but at the same time, you've expressed great skepticism about trust scores and trust surveys. So help us to unmuddle trust. What, what is it? How do we attain it? And, and what are the traps in, in pursuing trust? So what trust really means is, is hotly debated in academia, but the way trust tends to be treated in these surveys you mentioned is that it is equated with reputational risk. So uh, Charles Fombran, who really kind of coined and invented the concept of reputational risk in the 90s, says very explicitly, you know, this is about corporate value that is at risk from the perceptions of stakeholders. So all of this, again, I think draws leaders, draws corporations into the idea, you tell an attractive story, you deflect those reputational threats, 
and that will in some way translate to genuine trust. But but reputational risk is by definition defensive. It doesn't consider the underlying behavior. And so I think one of the the neat tricks of these surveys is to is to suggest that trust and reputation management are the same thing and they are not the same thing. If you really want a stakeholder to trust you, there has to be some notion there of, of reciprocity. There has to be some notion of interactivity. And none of that, I think, is, is built into this idea of, of reputational risk. I think, you know, the other big problem here is we're telling a corporations a story that isn't true, which is that if you have a good sustainability program and if you have good ESG ratings, then that will in some way deflect reputational risk. But all the data on activism shows that activists are just as likely to, to target good performers as poor performers. Being attacked in the public domain, facing scrutiny, is just as likely to indicate you're doing a good job than a bad job. So reputational risk is more of a, a funhouse mirror than a, a linear accountability mechanism. So I wish we had more time to go through some of your chapter headings, but in the interest of time, let's move on to, to solutions. You give a lot of practical advice on how to restore sanity and common sense to the sort of topics we've been discussing. And I was asking myself reading the book, you know, what's the common denominator? What's the recipe that, that sort of cuts across the chapters? And it seemed to me that you were saying implicitly, you know, don't pick fights you can't win. You know, make sure that you're looking at the impact on humans rather than words or metrics or, or, or trust scores. Prioritize. That was my sort of attempt to sort of articulate the, the, the recipe to avoid trouble across the chapters. How would you put this common thread of how to do better in this area? I mean, I do think a corporation is best placed to consider its impact on human beings as the core of its values and ethics efforts. There's an interesting study out of MIT that shows that corporations' value statements kind of converge around very kind of common ideas of integrity, teamwork, professionalism, really sort of empty verbiage. Very few of us can even remember our corporation's value statements. So I do think human rights frameworks, impact on human beings, offer the most reasonable grounding for, for ethics efforts in the 2020s, not least because they consider questions of, of when and whether you should and shouldn't impose your ideology on people that don't share it. So whether taking controversial positions as, as leadership is really a good idea if you're going to cause an alienated, resentful minority in your firm. I think even more importantly, unlike notions of ESG or sustainability or ethics and compliance, questions of human rights and human impact consider very explicitly the relative role of business, government, and civil society. So part of what's missing is we tend to act or suggest that companies should go out there and solve poverty, climate change, inequality, reproductive rights, et cetera, et cetera, without considering the role of other institutions. And, and to a very great degree, we can end up undermining the role of those other institutions. So I think we need to reframe and, and rethink questions of ethics and values as a collective decision-making effort. I talk about in the book, the work of a, a few Dutch banks, ABM, AMRO, and Rabobank have very dynamic, thoughtful approaches to ethics where they you know, bring the collective in to explore these issues and make decisions. An organization like Salesforce equally uses the same techniques and same approaches to consider the social impact of its technology. So 
I'm certainly not saying this is easy or straightforward, but I think it's a better approach than setting legalistic rules in a vacuum. It's a better approach than ticking the box on 40 ESG issues. It's a better approach than delegating all this to your PR team and hoping that the, you know, that will get stakeholders to leave you alone. It's really a better approach than, than much of what we're doing today, which worked very well for a long time, but isn't really working anymore. In your book, you talk about strategy as guiding what you don't do as well as what you do do. And there's a sort of a nuance in, in your comments just now that a lot of what we do under the broad heading of ethics or sustainability is unnecessarily complex or is a distraction. If a company wanted to declutter and bring down to earth and prioritize its efforts, where, where typically would it look for the, the irrelevance, the, the noise, the, the distraction? The way I would sort of illustrate the problem, and you know, a listener could Google any leading company's materiality map. As, as we're having this conversation, I'm picturing Unilever, usually seen as a, a poster child for these issues. I'm picturing Unilever's last materiality map, which included water, trade tariffs, inequality and poverty, women, you know, supply chain oversight, responsible food systems, you know, just an enormous laundry list of, of sustainability stuff, an enormous laundry list that is a mix of risk, innovation opportunities, impacts that the company cannot fully control. So this tendency to put a, a, a sort of grab bag of random issues out there, this tendency to argue that, you know, if any of our stakeholders care about this issue, we need to be doing something about it, is a big, big part of the problem. It's led to overpromising. It's led to incoherence. I have never worked with a company, no matter how big, that could meaningfully prioritize 30 or 40 environmental and social issues, yet that's what almost every company is out there doing. So not easy, but again, I would say focus on one to three issues that are existential to your business model, so a key to how you make money. Focus on those issues and then get clear what's a risk, what's an impact that may not yet present a risk, but may, may do in future, what is an opportunity, and focus there and be very, very, very clear about what you are and aren't going to do. So that, that is what I mean by being strategic about environmental and social issues. That doesn't obviously address pressures on culture, pressures on inclusion pressures on social identity that are, that are raging at the moment. No organization can argue that these cultural and diversity issues are irrelevant because if you, if you employ human beings, they're relevant. So I think the other thing that needs to happen is a conversation with the wider workforce where these trade-offs, where these priorities are fully explored, where there is an effort to kind of come to some conclusion and where it is, is made clear to everybody that, you know, if we're doing this one thing over here, it means we need to do something less over there. And all of this has become very difficult to say, but that brings us back to the, the comments I've made already about how this all makes much more sense, uh, why companies are doing such incoherent stuff in this domain, if we consider this a form of stealth marketing. But if we see this as a real strategic imperative, then we need to think differently. We need to be much more rigorous about what pressures these different issues present, not least because they tend to manifest in different teams and different departments, not necessarily the team that owns the risk is where the issue manifests. So, so that's very, very important. There needs to be more rigor. There needs to be more 
kind of thoughtfulness and much more restraint about what problems companies take on, not least because they don't always have the leverage to, to solve these problems. So implying that they do, implying that they can is causing many of the problems that we're seeing. So unfortunately, our, our time is nearly up, Alison. So I'd love to end on a more personal question, if I may. You yourself, I think, are forthright in your opinions, as we've seen on the podcast. And, and I think I'm um, fair to say no stranger to occasional controversy and friction. And I'm wondering how you, in your own work, apply the principles in your, in your book to embracing controversy and issues in the right places and avoiding exhaustion and friction to no good effect in, in others. Do you, do you have a way of thinking about that? I'm kind of grounded in wanting the world to be better, wanting business to be better, thinking that that is more achievable than it is being presented as. So not being afraid to critique things that are status quo or that are old fashioned ways of doing things that aren't working anymore but really believing passionately that if we focus, if we deploy our resources, if we think differently, if we ask different questions, a way forward to higher ground is achievable. So I think I have a lot of benefit because of my role, because I'm now in academia and I spent you know, many decades in consulting. I have a bit more freedom to use my own voice and say things that are difficult or impossible for people in the corporate world to say. And one of the reasons I, I know this is working is that if I do say something controversial, if I do put out a strong viewpoint, I will always get a ton of private messages saying, I, I wish I could say something like that, but I can't, it's too difficult, my employer doesn't want to. So I think there's a need to bring these issues to the fore. I think there are a lot of vested interests, not trying to confuse corporate leaders, but that have a big stake in, in one or more of these areas that stand to make money from one or more of these areas. And I, I think it's causing problems because the world keeps getting hotter. We're not solving these issues. So I would close by saying my book doesn't have all the answers, but I would argue that we, we urgently need to ask different questions. Well, thanks so much for spending time discussing the book with us, Alison, and good luck with the launch. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. I've been discussing Higher Ground, how businesses can do the right thing in a turbulent world, with Alison Taylor, which is coming out in February 2024 from HBR Press. I think the problems that Alison discusses will be very familiar to people. There's not a lot which is new in that. But I think the great contribution of the book, in my view, is that she's restoring some sort of common sense between, on the one hand, good intentions and hundreds of priorities and a focus on speech acts and metrics and getting embroiled in unnecessarily in controversies. And on the other hand, sort of a sensible way of making things better within the power of what is possible. I found a lot of a very good advice that probably applies to any business on that front. And as Alison just said in her last comment, I think she uses her bully pulpit very effectively because there are a lot of things that no corporation can say in public nowadays that we need somebody like Alison to say. So I strongly recommend the book. If you like this conversation, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. And as always, we welcome your feedback.